Testing, testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Welcome to our town. Well, hello and welcome to the Our Town podcast. My name is Nick Byfield and welcome indeed to this inaugural episode. Uh, I couldn't have started off this project without speaking to David Clark. Dare I say he's the custodian, the patriarch, the grand master of Our Town. He's the director of the Lakes District Museum and has been since 1989, but he has many, many other illustrious titles to his name in areas that he's contributed uh, to the town and the district since his permanent arrival here in, in the mid 80s. We do get to cover some of that ground, um, certainly not all of his contributions, uh, but please do sit back uh, and listen to, to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it.
so your reign at the museum and the, the Queen's reign sort of came full circle because <laughs> last year you were awarded the Queen's Service Medal for Heritage. Yeah, Heritage Protection, which was a, a great honour. And yes, you're right, you know, I was one of the last recipients, so got the um, QSM, now it'll be the KSM. And even when we went to the reception in Wellington, her portrait had the black sash draped across it, so all the photos have got this. Right. So yes, qu quite an experience and a great honour. Um, she must have put a word in for you just at the end there. Yes, <laughs> I don't know. Um, one of my nieces worked uh, for Prince Charles and lived at Kensington Palace, maybe she... Um, dropped a hint or something I don't know but what, what I want to ask is having sort of come to this role 33 years ago with no real professional interest or previous experience in heritage yeah and then 33 years on you've got such an integral understanding of heritage heritage preservation how have you grown um, and how have you built your interest understanding and yeah personal connection to, to Aratown through its heritage? Yeah, I think, um, you know, saying I didn't have an interest, I think just from what I said about being in, um, enamoured with Aratown from the first time I saw it, it must have been because of how it looked. So I thought, being part of the museum, and this wasn't just me, this had been the council in the 1970s, uh, Jack Reed's council probably, who recognised once tourists started coming here, what was it that they liked about it? And it was still the same things that people like about it now. So that wasn't just heritage, it was the, the landscape, the amenity, the walking down by the river and all the things I mentioned before. So I thought, well, part of my role is to protect, to get people to come to the museum. It's not gonna be any good if it's a museum stuck in a high street full of glass boxes and you know rampant development. It's going to be a museum still stuck in the atmosphere and amenity that exists when I started. So I worked hard to carry on that role that Jack Reed's council um, saw. 1989, as it transpired, was when there was a fierce debate because Arrowtown Council was absorbed by the wider Queenstown Lakes District Council. And there was a lot of fear that rules that Jack Reed's council had put in, in terms of heritage protection, were gonna be lost. So that got me interested in, you know, um, starting to sit on other committees other than the museum to try and make sure that that heritage was protected. Well, there seems to be a great deal that you've done to protect that heritage that you can sort of point to with the, the miners' cottages required restoration to the tune of $700,000, um, moving of the original police hut, the oldest wooden building, down towards Dudley's precinct, not to mention three and a half million dollars worth of earthquake strengthening here at the museum. Yeah. How different do you think Aratown would be today if you hadn't taken on some of those projects and that custodianship? Yeah, probably quite different. I don't think it was ever in my job description that I started going around saving other buildings around town. I just convinced the boards of the day that this is what we should do as part of a museum, not just social history, but also the built history. So that first project was the moving of the police camp building down to Butler's Green. It was up in Adamson Drive being used to store hay. It was in pretty bad condition, but I'd read previous information that it was part of the original police camp, so hence Aerotown's oldest building, and I thought, well, this is worth saving, and I'd heard the fire brigade were going to use it as a burning down <laughs> exercise. So I got the local Lions Club interested. We did the project, shifted it down there, and, you know, it's one of the most photographed buildings in town now. And that 
then led me on to two campaigns to save the um, Aratown Post Office and the Aratown Postmaster's House, and we managed to achieve that through um, community buy-in and um, support, and that's just become a great little couple of buildings with the gardens around it and much photographed. And you know, I was always of the view that they had to have some sort of economic use. And then we've moved on, as you say, to the miners' cottages, the jail, but also those groups that look um, after heritage protection in terms of the planning advisory group and then, you know, the um, lighting project that I've been involved in to light, night light some of the heritage buildings, all sorts of other little groups that I've been involved in that aren't necessarily part of my job description, but I've made them part of my job. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, looking back in hindsight, that it would be crazy to let any of these buildings and any of this heritage sort of fall by the wayside, but um, that's the case. You know. Yeah, well, look at the miners' cottages. They were so close to being demolitioned by neglect, long grass all around them. And then I look at them now with the vibrancy, with provisions, people walking through to the, you know, the Graham Brinsley's gallery behind, the bike hire happening, Roman's Lane happening. When I first came here, um, Ramshaw Lane was just a swath of asphalt from one side to the other. There wasn't even a footpath, so no one went down Ramshaw Lane. It was just the back end, and I'm thinking, well, that's the the face that faces the river. Mm. Why wouldn't we be facing the river, facing the north? So in, in my, you know, I, I became a councillor partly to instigate some of the um, recommendations of these planning workshops. I think that was a, a big catalyst, the 1994 planning workshop. It was very visionary once again for what other people were doing in, in New Zealand and a lot of other small heritage towns have, have taken our lead uh, whereby you know it was a community driven project and one of the things that came out of that was the um, the landscaping of Remshaw Lane and the upgrade of, of um, Buckingham Street to make it a much more pedestrian friendly although you know for now, you know, you and I are now going through the debate about how we make it more pedestrian because it's just teeming with cars. Yeah. Yeah. So that question's often raised: is should Buckingham Street be pedestrianised, and what's your position on that? Ah, <laughs> oh, you know, I get constantly asked about that. I, I'm sort of in two minds. I think in the summer it is pretty jolly chaotic, and you would think, gosh, it would be nice if there was less cars. In the winter, you know there'd be tumbleweeds blowing down the street on some days. People always say, well, it's still a working town, and it is a working town. Um, you know, you've still got post office and bottle shops and night and day and pharmacy and people of disabilities and certain age want to come down and pick stuff up, and they can only do that with a car. So I'm still inclined to say the best solution is a shared space and removes a lot of the parking out of the main street so that people can drive through, but they're encouraged to go and park their cars and, and walk make it hard for cars to come through, mm. rather than now they just want to come through licking an ice cream and see what, what it's all about. And you can't blame them because you come down the hill and you look up the main street and think, well, that's pretty interesting, let's drive down there. So it's been a debate for since the 1960s. It used to be two-way Buckingham Street. Then it went one way the other, going in the right. other direction. <laughs> then it went one way going in the present direction. And now, of course, there's a lot of, and I will say it would, it will happen probably um, in the next 10 years, maybe, don't know. Yeah, well, as you say, it's more that 
the philosophy is towards shared use and say making it difficult for vehicles so that they have to slow down that pedestrians are prioritized yeah. and that everyone can interact um, as they need to you know those that have traveled and you coming from the uk you'll know that small market towns have closed off their centers and you push the cars to the outside but you know pushing the cars to the outside here we're sort of geographically constrained as to where they can go mm. um, and you know the best solution probably would have been and it was something we tried to instigate was parking at Millbrook Corner which later got given to council as a reserve contribution by Millbrook and is now a lovely cricket ground but at one stage we were talking about parking and getting little pay and ride uh, vehicles to bring people into town or walk into town. And people may not be aware that the schist curbing um, down Buckingham Street wasn't yeah. always there. You know, no. the fact that you can look at an old yeah. photograph and it's almost identical, you can pick out the pharmacy and some of those buildings. How did that project unfold? Well, this was, um, once again, came from that 94 and then 2003 charrette. And the 2003 charrette or planning workshop came about when I was on my second council term. My first council term was 1998, I think. And I was partly um, inspired to do that, to try and carry out some of these recommendations. And that included, as I said before, Ramshaw Lane upgrade, Buckingham Street upgrade. And as part of the Buckingham Street upgrade, we thought, well, do we want um, just extruded bloody white concrete curbs like every other town does, or do we do a point of difference and put the schist curbs back in? and we got the funding to do the schist curbs. I'd never do it today, it was horrendously mm. expensive. The main catalyst though was the camber of the road. It had just been sealed and sealed and sealed over generations, so it had this sort of bow surface and every camper van that came down wiped out the veranda posts and um, which they still spouting, do. which they still do. <laughs> and But it was even worse, they would be on such an angle that all the petrol would come out of their tanks and run down the gutter, so in the summer it was somewhat of a fire hazard. So. We got those two big projects done, um, partly when I was on council and won national awards for landscaping, which was which was great, a great achievement. And then opened up the whole back of the town to new shopping and eating experiences and access to the river. So bringing it back to the most recent project, the earthquake strengthening of the museum, yeah. Yeah. that must have been quite a daunting ask when you first got told that that was something that was needed to yeah. be done. Yeah. Um, I sort of got ahead of the game by knowing after um, the earthquakes in Christchurch that government was going to be requiring people with unreinforced buildings to to do some strengthening. It happened after the Anangahua earthquake, it happened after Napier, it happened after, happens after every big New Zealand earthquake. So um, I got the engineers in to assess what, it, what its requirements were, I started to get prices. But, you know, this took years to get into. So I got I got prices and was all ready to go, but when the prices came in at three million for the work and 500,000 for new displays, we thought, well, how are we ever going to raise this sort of money? We haven't got the ability to raise that sort of money. Um, will we have to close that part of the, the bank down? And of course, COVID worked in mysterious ways and that there was this money called shovel ready money i kept hassling them from my desk at home during lockdown no we didn't apply uh, we didn't comply with the regulations that needed to be a ten thousand dollar project i said look we've got all the consents ready to go um building consent resource consent conservation plans i've done that in the interim years from 
the um, Christchurch earthquake through to COVID lockdown. And then one day, um, this group, Provincial Development Unit, which was a sort of another part of the shovel-ready uh, money, rang up and said, get your... Um, get your comms people to be ready to make a, a statement tomorrow. And they rang up and said, look, you've got the two million. And I know Jim Bolt from council did a lot of lobbying in Wellington for us. And then council put up the other million dollars. And so we had the three million dollars ready to go. Didn't have to go and do the sausage sizzles <laughs> and the, you know, making jam. And then Central Lakes Trust came up with the other. So, you know, that was... Lockdown wasn't good for some people, but it was great for me. I made three and a half million for the museum over that time. Because was there a moment there that the museum might not have survived if it hadn't been able to raise the funds? We certainly would have had to close a third of the museum down ultimately mm. on that corner. But you know, everyone said, "Oh, you'll get the money," but the benefic- you know, the um, benefactors didn't come out of the woodwork. A few put a thousand here and a thousand there, but. You know, were they going to come to the party? Maybe they would have, I don't know. But um, I didn't have to go cap in hand, so that was amazing. Which legacy projects, or if you can call them those, but which projects would you point to as a legacy project that you feel that you're most proud of and um, the impact you've had on the town? I often walk around the river track and know that uh, Colin Walker from Regional Council and I got that implemented. Got flooded out the first year it was built and was just before it got handed over to council to maintain and regional council had to reinstate it and they reinstated it slightly better and slightly higher and I walk around that track and see the amount of people that use that river loop and go wow I I played a part of that. Skate park which was on my watch, uh, the new liner for the swimming pool, the upgrade of Buckingham Street, upgrade of Ramshaw Lane and then obviously the buying of the post office and, and still running that as second oldest running post office in the country. I said pick one, David. Oh, sorry. <laughs> pick yeah. one. Oh, okay. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that river track gives me the, the most joy, I think. I was going to say I'm quite surprised you, you, you picked that as not something in the built environment. <laughs> yes. Um, me as a relative newcomer, you just couldn't imagine the river without the, yeah. the river loop there. It's amazing to think that it there was nothing there. Yeah. There was a partial track on one side, so we saw the potential. And you know, uh, there was another guy called John Mowat who just wanted bridges everywhere, and he raised a lot of money to put bridges both across the arrow there, but further up, so you can get to Mastown without getting your feet wet. And he deserves a medal as well. So tell us what's happening at the museum today. You've got some new displays. You've got art exhibitions always uh, rolling what's what's happening right now well it's a pretty bustly little museum um, you know we've bounced back after COVID like a lot of tourism at the moment um, we've got something on in the art gallery we change the exhibitions over there every five or six weeks that's something I instigated in about 1993 that room was just full of um, Dua Scottish settler portraits that no one went into so I thought this can do better let's turn it into an art gallery where at least the locals would come in and see changing exhibitions so we've had the place full of schools through our education program today we've had lots of visitors um, looking at our amazing books and art collection in our gift shop and then you know hundreds of people through our upgraded museum displays which We've made more and more hands-on and, you know, museum visitors expect to be entertained. It's not like quiet. 
uh, reflective places you've got to have a little bit of entertainment so some of our new displays are reflected in, in that there's a pinball machine there's um, an operation being performed in shadow above the old doctor's bed there's challenges for the kids um, that's the thing that gives, also gives me great joy is our education program that the children of this district know more about the history than their parents and their, mm. and their grandparents through the museum and they love coming here and um, they'll come in after hours you know they're not all stuck on their devices and no. they want to come down to the museum and um, I think that all started by me doing this diorama of a man on an outside toilet um, who yeah. yells at you when you open the door and generations of kids and <laughs> yeah, who are now yeah. adults come in because I've been here for 34 years and they're now adults and come in. Have you still got the man on the toilet? Yeah, still saying the same old thing. Yeah, it gets there every time, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, we've made the museum fun and that's why it's so popular. I think you mentioned the Aratown Promotion and Business Association yeah. earlier, which we worked together on. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, the the organisation behind the brand, behind yeah. the Aratown logo. Yeah. I believe you were there at the beginning instigating the setting up of that. Yeah. Tell us it about was, that. It was sort of a fledgling voluntary group where you put a hundred bucks up for each business and it had no sort of structure. And like DQ, we realised that we needed to be funded by a rating levy. There was a guy that ran, the, ran a double-decker bus and a wine trail, a guy called Ray Furner, who now is the New Zealand manager of Rinai, so he sort of segued into a different career path. A guy called Norman Smith, who um, was a former accountant that ran Viking motels, and myself. I'm not sure if Bruce Gibbs was around in those days. I think he probably was. Council said, if you door-knock all the businesses and get 75% of them to agree to a rating differential levy like we've got in Queenstown, we'll do it. And that's what we did. So we through that exercise of door knocking, and everyone was saying, sure, you know, it had just never been done before. Instead of a, this optional $100 a year, everyone had to pay money and we got a funding base and we were able to move from there. And as more businesses came into town, we got more money and then we started to employ someone and we got more and more professional to the state we are now, which is a great institution with um, the next generation of brains who are far more switched on and, and um, than we ever were in our fledgling sort of efforts at, at promotion. Although we did, you know, go to the trends conferences and we did ensure bus tours still came to town and then, you know, a lot of our marketing, marketing initiatives were sort of innovative and we did have very clever people, but there was probably quite a bit of infighting in those days, which whilst there's still some, everyone's much more collegial, I think. So what's the APB up to today? What are the topics that are keeping it going? Uh, the Business Association, I think. Um, not only, only are they just promotional, but they have also jumped onto the, the idea that you've got to protect the town because the town is the product, uh, rather than just saying, let's bring more and more people. Um, so that's one thing that's probably changed. It's just not bums on seats and pure promotion. It's how we... And you think about what we're doing, you know, the bike parks, shared space, um, the gateway to the Mahu Whenua land, river margins. They're not exactly promotional projects, but they're projects that ensures that the product that we have, Arrowtown itself, is um, still a desirable place to come. And that's a very fragile environment, as we all know, you know. The world's littered with 
resort towns that get it wrong or overdevelop or squeeze people out because no one can afford to live and we're sort of at that point at the moment uh, in terms of affordable housing. But our advantage is that we've got an amazing strong community here and I think that goes a long way. And they're all interested in the town and that goes a long way to making sure, you know, everyone's pretty vocal um, in a good way. That ensures that the town's survival is, is going to be guaranteed. We do have to watch about, you know, this affordable housing and, and how that might impact on school roles and how families are leaving the district and whether it becomes the prerogative of the rich and, and too much like Aspen and no one, everyone has to live down the valley. And, um, you know, I do see signs of that all the time, but I've been saying that for 30 mm. years. And the same, if you look at the mountain scene 30 years ago, it'll be affordable housing crisis. You know, well, Queenstown becoming the prerogative of I'd the I'd rather buy one 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, it's, it's not an easy solution either. I don't know how you solve it because land values are so high. It can only come through central government or local government. Yeah, I was just going back to the APBA. Nikki Bust, who's the ma manager of the APBA, she's, she describes it as the equivalent of DQ, Destination Queenstown, and the Chamber of Commerce, because as you're saying, it's not just about pure promotion, yeah. it's that support of business, and yeah. therefore indirectly support of uh, our families and people yeah. that live in the town and, and run successful businesses. Yeah. And that is another big change since you know, I came, the number of businesses that are moving into town, you know, up above Arrow Lane, and they see the future of the town as a place they want to be. They they like having their clients here, they like the recreation on the doorstep, go for a walk, feed into the cafes, which is critical during the winter and the quieter season that we've now got all these workers. You know, up to 400 workers living, uh, sorry, working in Arrowtown on any given day, probably even more now. So. You know, that's been a big change from Sleepy Arrow Lane. It's just full mm. of full of office workers now. And what's happening down at the dishery um, beside the Chinese settlement's a big change and more getting constructed at the moment. Um, you know, there's a real push for office space here, which, you know, isn't tourist related at all. So you're right, there's that Chamber of Commerce, which isn't just pure promotion of, of tourists. And another uh, committee or board that you're involved with is APAG, the Arrowtown yeah. Planning and yeah. Advisory Group. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what role that plays. Um, that was a spin-off after 1989 when um, Arrowtown was amalgamated, Arrowtown Council. A petition went to local government and they rejected uh, the argument that Arrowtown shouldn't be amalgamated but agreed to allow a planning committee to stay for two terms. That planning committee had the power to make decisions, but then it was divested of its power and in replacement was uh, basically an urban design panel that was able to look at applications in the heritage zones and make comment that weren't binding, but over time, council planners have generally always sought the advice of, of this group that is usually made up with a couple of architects, landscape art, architect, historians, and then lay people, people that want to be on a committee to vet these applications and it's been a really successful process. Sometimes we get niggles that, you know, you shouldn't be able to tell us what we do on our own property, but you buy into Arrowtown with this idea, especially in the heritage zones, that these are zones worth protecting and, and that you your design should be sympathetic to that environment. So how do you define the heritage zones? Where are they? Uh, they go to? up to about Stafford and Kent Street, down to Nairn Street, 
and out to Mance Road, the War Memorial. So mostly all the places that you'll see a sprinkling of original cottages. And the values behind that area was that they were green leafy sections, street trees, small form buildings with gardens. And then of course the argument now is about intensification if we want to fit more people in. And intensification is now happening in you know, Adamson Drive in terms of the mixed density zoning. And that'll have to be looked at again, I suspect, um, in terms of affordable housing. It's it's a great result. You know, one of the other things I was involved with was was the pushing of the the Taylor Banks um, development, which is going to have 68 houses and um, you know co-living sort of environment, and that's going to be brilliant for Arrowtown. Whether or not it's going to open up any more housing, because I think you know. It's all, they're already taken by people that have been on the waiting list and there's probably a waiting list of, a, I think Julie Scott, the CEO, said another 400 households are waiting for affordable housing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good start and, you know, we're, we've got to identify perhaps a few more of those. So the uh, there are some Aratown planning guidelines, aren't there? There's actually a document. Yeah. Is it just about being sympathetic in inverted commas or are there specific rules and yeah it's quite prescriptive but you know the group recognizes the change in, in materials and um you know it was so prescriptive that it always said wooden joinery in the first incarnation of the plan but now you know obviously aluminium joinery except on original heritage buildings but it has a palette that we call the um Aratown vernacular so that's your schist your corrugated iron painted surfaces um Corten steel's getting used now a bit, as we can see from that new development opposite the fire station. Um, some people say, you know, it's a bit twee. Other people say, well, you know, that's what makes the town have a special character. And, and I always say, well, the proof is in the pudding. People can't get enough of it. They flock to town. And um, what do they flock for?
the amenity that's been created by that small-scale development. The main Buckingham Street could have been seven storeys on either side or five storeys on either side. What would it have looked like? You know, would it have the same character? Well, there are plenty of examples of towns that have gone down that route. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I've said before, it's for fortuitous that the town almost died yes. in that it was left yes. untouched yes. and then became yes. a holiday destination yeah. that meant people didn't tinker too much. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And that's how we were able to create it by um, getting in on the ground in the 1970s and, and when those first tour buses arrived and saying, well, do we want to just be swamped or can we control this a little bit better? So where do you think things are going from here? We've talked about the last 33 years. What do you think that the, the challenges and the changes well, that are to come? Yeah, I've touched on some of those. Um, so that's affordability. The changing face of the economy. So um, moving away from one egg, you know, eggs all in one basket with tourism and into techie type businesses, the array of businesses in, in Aritam, for instance, you know, there's lots of environmental businesses. There's all this hot desking, there's creative graphic artists, there's artisans, there's all sorts of people that aren't tourist related. So that has to happen. Um, golf tourism is a big thing that has happened in the last 15 years um, that brings huge money into town. The whole Millbrook on our boundary has been pretty amazing, you know, people were dubious but they've been a great neighbour, employer and they feed people into town. Um, sure, they're of um, high, they're what we would call high value tourists. Um, we have to still be, it's, it gets harder and harder, we've still got our camping ground, but we still have to be um, available for, for New Zealand tourists. Um, and I think we still are, it doesn't have to cost money to come and stay at the camping ground, not much money, and still do all those things that we did as kids to go down to the river, it doesn't cost you anything go down gold panning for a few bucks, walk up to Mastown. We're so lucky to have the Mahu Whenua land behind us, you know, 52,000 hectares of our own virtual national park behind us and all that that's going to provide over the next 20 years with walking trails. There'll be a great trail track through there and, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be the um, start and finish of it. And I think you've said in the past that previously Aratown sort of had its back to the river yes. and now we're yeah. starting to turn to face the river. Definitely. Definitely, you know, that was just crazy that, but then that was, you know, how industrial towns were, they weren't interested in the aesthetics or, well, they weren't interested in facing the sun, they were just interested in building in the best and easiest possible way, and our town, the river was, was, a, um, was a threat, you had cliffs at the back mm. of town, you know, the river's filled up about 10 to 12 metres of gravel since the gold rush days. So it's quite a different sort of river down there. The other regret is, you know, regional council pushing that river way over behind stock banks. And so you just don't get that full impact when I first came to town of the river. Just you could hear it roaring on heavy rain days just behind the town and everyone would go down and have a look. And, but they kept saying, oh, it's costing too much to put rocks to stop it. But in all my time here, I've only ever seen it come over where the skate park is once in the 99 flood. So, you know... It, whether they had to push it over there, I don't know. I don't like the result. I don't think anyone does. And you've, we've talked together about, you know, the dust bowl of weeds down there that isn't that attractive.
I'm in awe of what they've done up Sawpit Gully and all the planting there. I think that's where the planting is good, where the, there would have been native vegetation originally. But to try and introduce Fiordland into the banks of the Arrow River, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe I'm just out of touch and it's a generational debate, which it seems to be. I think we're moving to a point where we need to have a wider discussion on all of the things that we've touched on, sort of going back to that initial meeting you talked about in, was it 1994, mm. uh, and setting out a master plan of all of these things of our natural environment, both sort of natural and managed, yeah. of our infrastructure, yeah. um, and sort of think ahead to go, well, if Aratown was as it was when you discovered it 33 years ago, or as you started working at the museum, and all the interventions you've had the opportunity to make and participate in, what are those next interventions going to be to ensure that we've got something that we can all yeah, be proud of? Exactly. And how does everything interweave, knit together, yeah. and the sort of this no, word legib fair, fair legibility? Comment, fair comment. I mean, I call it the last settler because I, I mean, you know, I still love it passionately, and these people will whinge and say, "Oh, it was way better twenty years ago." The, allowed it to be yeah. stuffed whereas everyone else arriving on the coaches go oh this is amazing and they find it today amazing um, because they're seeing as, as it is today so you can't sort of make your judgment based on what it was like 20 years ago the secret is to protect those things that are valued through our planning workshops and the latest one of course shaping our future was only just recently done again last year or finished last year and they kept reinforcing all the things that had been reinforced in 1994. Mm. The good thing about the 1994 workshop is that it came out with some really good drawn plans. And those were implemented for Buckingham Street. Those were implemented for Remshaw Lane. Um, there's drawings of what the river margin should look like, you know, but we keep reinventing that. So I think you do, you're right, we need some master plans. and. Um, the problem has been to get that sort of next generation, certainly I'm heartened by people like you and others, um, that next generation to be engaged and involved um, um, to get good representation. Go but ahead. you know, it's the same situation, yeah. It's always the same faces that pop up in, in discussions on how the town should go. Well, as I said earlier, <coughs> it's hard to imagine you know, the river without the river track you just assume yes. that things yeah. have always been yeah. as they are and um, as you say last settler it's a human instinct to resist change and I think if we can all get involved participate in the discussion yeah. and hope that we can evolve in a way that's positive for everybody and is in the longer term interest of the town yeah well David that seems like a good place to draw it to an end I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to us on our inaugural episode and um, I'm sure I'll have opportunity there's plenty of, plenty of ground that we haven't covered um, an opportunity to talk to you again in the future pleasure to talk to you thanks Nick